Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of All Things Evangelism, where we're going to talk about Laodicea. I've got some guests here this week, some special guests. It's the Conference Evangelists from the North New South Wales Conference. That is Lyle Southwell, Justin Tarosian, and Sharissa Tarosian-Fong. <laughs> <laughs> Great to be here, Matt. Yeah, guys. Thanks for joining me. There's a reason why we've got all three conference evangelists here this week, and that's because this is our 100th episode of this podcast. It's surprising to me that we've been going this long for this podcast, but it's almost been, what is 100? It's almost two years. It would be more than two years, I would think, because 52 weeks a year, we do one episode a week. We do one consistently every week? every week. Okay. Oh, there you go. Almost two years. Mm. Almost two years. It's crazy. Wow, that went fast. How time flies. Yeah, hey. Hey, listen, it's just been a great journey so far to be sharing insights and inspiration about all things that pertain to evangelism. That's what this podcast is all about. And we thought, hey, to celebrate the 100th episode, we'd have the conference team here together to do this. Maybe we should do this every week. Everyone gets together and, (laughs) and make all things evangelism, all the whole evangelism team. This kind of makes it extra special. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. true. Hey, there there are probably some people in our conference that don't uh, know us all. So maybe we can go around and tell them who we are and what we do. You want to start, ladies, first? Okay. So my name is Sharissa Tarosian, and I'm the prayer coordinator for the North New South Wales Conference. So we plan our prayer conference every year. But also part of this team, very excited to be part of it. And I'm married to Justin, who will introduce himself in just a minute. And we're expecting a baby. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. (laughs) (laughs) We're making a human. (laughs) Yes. Amen. Yes. We believe in church growth and (laughs) even biological growth. (laughs) My name is Justin and I pastor the Hamilton Seventh-day Adventist Church and I have the privilege of serving on the conference evangelism team here as well, presenting, doing presentations primarily online to share the gospel in yeah, the Australian context and beyond. So my name's Lyle Southwell. Apart from being on the evangelism team, I host the breakfast show on Faith FM Radio, and I'm the regional mentor for the Hunter and a couple of Newcastle churches. That's pretty much what I do and pretty heavily involved at Raymond Terrace Church these days. Fantastic, guys. Yeah, thanks again for being here. I'm excited to talk about our subject today, and we chose this specifically because it's a special episode, and that is Laodicea and how the cure for Laodicea is evangelism. Now, that's a statement that I'm making because I think it's true, and we've titled this podcast that because I think it's it's true. But before we get into Revelation chapter 3, because we're going to spend some time together reading it and considering it and considering this podcast episode in the light of it, but just from the Bible, could we make the case that the Christian person is energized by doing mission, or that mission has a benefit. It energizes, it enlivens the church and the people of the church. Can we make that case, and how do we make that case? We can definitely make that case. I think that if you look at the, just look at the book of Acts. Yes. You've got a situation here where you've got 120 disciples who gather together in an upper room, and they're given a commission. This is a massive commission. It's just, it's enormous. It's to take the gospel to the whole world. You know, it's not like... Jesus has got together a church of about 120 people, thereabouts, a decent-sized church, and said, take the gospel to your nearby suburbs. Neither has Jesus come to it and said, take it to your city or even your country. He's come to this one church of 120 people, and he said, 
okay, here's what I want you to do and take the gospel to the entire world, every single person on the planet. Now, that commission, the bigness of that commission, really enabled the church at that time to put aside their differences. They had been very divided up until this point. If you look at, go back a few days earlier, really, when the Last Supper takes place and they're all arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven and this incredibly divided amongst them all. But you've got the bigness of the vision, which now overcomes all of their petty differences because they fade away when the vision is that big and cease to be so important. And then that is combined as their differences go and they spend time in prayer, they draw close together, they come into unity. It creates an environment for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the church is energized by the Holy Spirit. It's energized by the commission. And it's energized by the fact that they actually go out and do this. And the example that we've got in Acts is an example where they go out and do it in the most oppressive circumstances imaginable. They are absolutely hated for what they are presenting, and yet they don't care. They're like, we're going to present this anyway because this is amazing. This is the best news we've ever heard. So I think there's probably, yeah. Justin, just jumping in on that just real quick, one sentence from the book Acts of the Apostles, kind of reflecting how the church went from that to kind of trying to protect what was there rather than being on the front foot in reaching out in evangelism. She says this on page 105, forgetting that strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service. Aggressive service. Strength to resist evil. Yeah. Victory and health, spiritual health, like Matt, like you were asking about. They began to think that they had no work so important as that of shielding the church in Jerusalem from the attacks of the enemy. So they went from being largely on the offense, at least in Jerusalem at this time, to trying to protect what was there. And they forgot that strength to resist evil, your personal spiritual health, is best gained through aggressive service, through evangelism, through reaching out. Amen. And maybe the part of that is because when we do engage in aggressive evangelism or outreach, we're actually uniting our hearts with the heart of heaven, like reaching souls, saving souls. That's God's mission. That's God's passion. And when we engage in that, then it's like joining in the passion of God. It's very exciting. I know a Bible worker named Jacob Gibbs, and he used to say that going out in the community for him was Adventist Tylenol. He said, it, it cures all the spiritual headaches that I have. So I'm, I get tied down to my own personal challenges and struggles. And he says, yeah, I just go out in the community and try to find people to share Christ with and give Bible studies to. And he's like, that just goes away. Mm-hmm. It just disappears. What do you think of that? <laughs> that's a good one. Is that like Panadol? Panadol. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's the American version of Panadol. That's right. So is there any more Bible? Because Okay, so Laodicea, for those who don't know, is a, was a church in the Near East that is used to typify the condition of uh, one of the possible conditions that you can find the Christian church in. Okay, we'll talk about what that is in a bit, but it's really just to kind of preempt a bit. It's the condition of being kind of lukewarm, not really fired up for God, not really against God or cold or frozen against God, but you're just there. It's just mediocre Christianity. And so our premise, our argument is that mission evangelism is the cure for that state of being. And so now I want to see if you guys, because I appreciate what you've said so far, Was there any more Bible cases that you'd make? So someone was like, okay, that's not enough for me. Give me some more convincing that the Bible communicates that we get energized spiritually and we get fired up for God more when we do evangelism because lots of people would think, no, when we're not fired up for God, we don't need to do evangelism. We need to do in-reach or we need to get ourselves right, right? The one time that I can find, and you guys may have found one, let me know because then I'll stop saying this, but the one time I found in the Bible where Jesus told someone no who wanted to follow him, is the demoniac in Luke chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 8. And here's this demoniac. Actually, there were two demoniacs, Matthew tells us, 
Jesus. They were so bad. They were cutting themselves with stones. They were naked, chains around their wrists where they had broken the shackles that they tried to be bound with. Legions of demons had been in them. Jesus casts out the demons. And then the pig herders come and they see, along with the disciples, they look out and they see these men sitting and clothed at Jesus' feet, sitting and clothed and in their right minds. And afterward, it says in verse 38 of Luke 8, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him, that is, he begged Jesus, that he might be with him. He wanted to be with Jesus. He never wanted to leave his side. This is the man that healed him and that cast out these demons that had harassed him. It says, But Jesus sent him away. He basically said, No, you can't come with me. But it moves on, of course, the passage says, saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. How amazing that even more significant than being physically with Jesus, this man would spiritually grow when he reached out to his family and his friends, those who knew him best, those who had loved him most in the past, who had lost their son, their friends, and who could see the power of the gospel and what a transformation the gospel had made in his life. Yeah, good. I just I'll just start chatting about some of my thoughts here since yeah, since you're all quiet now. <laughs> so, yeah, in Mark 16, it's a good example of how mission gives you more passion. Just doing God's work, it increases your own faith. And Jesus tells the disciples who clearly don't believe sufficiently because on three occasions in the chapter, he says that they, it says they didn't believe, right? So a testimony comes to them from the women, they don't believe. And then it says two other disciples who saw Jesus risen testified to that. And then it says the disciples didn't believe. And then it says Jesus appears among them and says, why didn't you guys believe? So Mark's gospel is trying very hard to tell us that the belief of the disciples was insufficient, like they didn't have a lot of belief. And then Jesus says, go to all the world and tell them to, to believe the gospel or else they'll be lost. And whoever doesn't believe is going to be doomed and whoever does believe will have eternal life. And then, so it's, you're telling these guys who don't believe as much as they should believe that they need to go tell everybody to believe. Why would you do that? Unless telling other people to believe somehow, some way increases your mm, belief, increases your faith. So it's like the idea of giving what you have and then what you have, you know, is increased like the whole feeding the 5,000. We don't have enough to feed everybody, but we'll give everybody what we have. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, supernaturally, we have more than we had before. So I think that's, there's a lot of cases that can be made from the Bible that when we give, we get. It's just the principle of the gospel. When I decide that I'm going to give what I have to other people, then I end up having more of it. And so if I'm in a Laodicean condition and I don't have enough faith and energy and passion and conviction for the mission and for God and yeah, I'm just a lukewarm person. Maybe I should start giving what I have, and then maybe what I have will increase. That's the principle of the gospel. And Which brings the, to mind Proverbs eleven twenty five: The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also himself be watered. And right before that, it says, There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than his, and it leads to poverty. That's a, just tying into what you were saying. That's it. It's like when I'm not giving, I'm taking. And that's not the principle of the gospel. The gospel principle is someone dies for someone else. And then they get resurrected and set on the, get set on the right hand of God. So Jesus gives himself for other people. And then now look where he's at. <laughs> right? you, know? you see it in the example of the disciples because we look at the disciples and we look at how they lived and we look at what they accomplished and the, the terrible persecution that they faced and how strong they were. And we see them as giants of faith. And we sit back and say, oh, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to have faith like that, to be able to go and do those things and to experience those things. And we ask ourselves the question then, okay, why is their faith like that? The reason that their faith is like that is because they are actually 
testing their faith constantly by the way they are living because they are constantly sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere they go, this is their one thing. They are sharing it. That is then giving them experiences in faith. Those experiences in faith strengthen their faith so that when they are facing just terrible, terrible circumstances, you've got Paul and Silas singing in the jail and these kinds of stories that are very famous stories. The reason they're able to do that is because they have been sharing the gospel and as they have been sharing the gospel, their faith has been strengthened. Amen. So good. Okay, hey, so let's go to Revelation chapter 3. We'll just hang out together and read. We'll read together the chapter, and not the whole chapter, but just the portion where Jesus addresses the Laodicean condition. And yeah, maybe, Justin, you've got your Bible open if you'd read that for us. Sure. Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans writes, These things says the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, yeah, wow. So this message to the Christian church who's in this particular condition is one that would require humility to to accept, right? That's my first impression. It's, it's like that that right there, that Bible verse seems very, to me, I don't know about to you guys, It's it seems very unlike a lot of messages I hear today being communicated both in society and in the church. Like I, Jesus is here identifying the church, its condition, and it's pretty unflattering. That's Definitely. What, it's not a flattering condition. Like, you think this, but the reality is this. And what you think, it's not too bad, what you think about yourself. But the reality, wretched. I don't know the last time I was called wretched. I don't know the last time I called anyone else wretched. Like, you're wretched. You, know what I mean? <laughs> you, know, you don't say that much. But you guys have any Im- immediate reflections on this? Like, just before we dig into the topic at hand, like the cure for this, what's the cure for this? We can find it in the text both explicitly and I think implicitly. But uh, I love the just, I just love the hospitality context that comes through here where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. So there's this hospitality context that works its way through here. And have you ever invited somebody to come over for a, I'd love you to come over. We're just going to have this amazing lukewarm meal. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. Here's a lukewarm drink to go with the lukewarm meal. You invite somebody over for hot food or a hot drink or cold food, a salad or whatever, and a cold drink, maybe on a hot day. The whole context here is of something that is just repulsive in a, in the environment of hospitality. This was, this is the, this is, this story is originating in the Middle East who are just renowned. They're off the charts when it comes to hospitality. And yet what the Bible says, what the Bible points out is that what we are offering to God is actually repulsive and insulting. You take this culture where hospitality is such a big thing 
and you're going to invite people over to this just insulting environment. And it's like God saying, hey, this is what you are offering to me. This is how it comes across. How would you like that? Yeah. You know what I like about it on that, on what you just said, is that God is the one, Jesus is the one who brings the meal. <laughs> I don't have to cook and he brings a meal. <laughs> no, it, 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 it speaks a bit to God's desire to be with people, right? Like even if yes. you have a pretty unpalatable, even if you're, what you're offering me isn't that attractive. Are you still standing at the door and I'm knocking? St I'm still happy to come. Yeah, I'm still knocking at the door. I still want to come in. Yeah. He has the solution. And what's amazing is if you look at this, all of the seven churches, the message to the local literal church in Asia, in Asia there, Asia Minor, was relevant. It had aspects that geographically and historically applied to that people group. But of course, this prophetically applies to a different time period of God's church down through time, the Laodicea being us at the end of time. But what's amazing about this is the whole hot and cold analogy, these are all illustrations that the local literal church of Laodicea in the first century would have heard and been like, whoa, this totally applies to us. Because Laodicea was on a mountain, pretty high elevation, but not as high as where they got their water from. The problem with Laodicea, one of the problems was they had no water source of their own. And so they had to plumb water in from what today is called Pamukkale, which in Turkish means cotton castle. And if you Google Pamukkale or old ancient Hierapolis is what it was called before, there was hot water springs from there that you can see. And Lyle, have you been there? No. Oh, me either. I haven't been yet, but we're going to go someday. Yes. Jesus doesn't come first. But there are these water, water pipes made of stone that they used and, and basically brought water all the way across. But by the time it arrived in Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore, nor was it cold. It was lukewarm and tepid and disgusting. And so Jesus plays on this illustration and the people had all tasted lukewarm water on a hot day when they were thirsty and knew, oh, I just want to spew it out of your mouth. And Jesus says, hey, that's you because spiritually you're neither on fire for me nor against me. You're in the middle and you're lukewarm. And so there's even more historical. Let me just throw this in and then I'll shut up and everyone else can share. But when he says wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked, the poor, blind, and naked parts, interestingly, the word wretched and the word miserable only ever appear one other place in Scripture, in Greek, in the New Testament. Wretched, Romans chapter 7, where Paul is like, hey, I'm, I want to do the right thing, but then I don't, and there, I want to, but I, like, I end up doing what I don't want to do. And he's struggling with sin, and he says, "Who, will, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So the context of that word is slavery to sin. Whereas the word miserable is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if we, if Christ is not risen, then we of all people as believers in Christ of all men are most miserable. So the context of the words wretched and miserable in their only other place in the New Testament are in the context of slavery to sin and really victory over sin and victory over death that Jesus offers. But slavery to sin and the result being miserable, essentially, if we don't accept Christ. And then the miserable, wretched, miserable, then it's poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea was very rich. They were a banking capital. They minted gold coins and uh, incredibly wealthy to the point that in the first century, when they had a massive earthquake there, the Roman government said, hey, we'll send you money to repair your city. And they said, no, no, we've got it. We don't need your money. Yeah, wow. And they actually built it. And there's a massive stadium there in the city of Laodicea. So Laodicea was very rich. Secondly, he says, you're poor, blind, and naked. It was actually a center of ophthalmology. There was a world-famous ophthalmologist in Laodicea. They made an eye uh, salve out of this Phrygian powder that they exported to the world as eye medication. So Jesus says, hey, you're exporting eye medication to the world. You're actually blind. 
And then he says, you're naked. Lastly, Laodicea was famous for its black wool garments that they would, they had these black sheep that they would actually, it's very high expensive stuff that ladies around the world would love to wear. And they exported these black wool garments to the rest of the world as like a Gucci or very fancy expensive brand. And so Jesus takes these three illustrations of things that they specialize in. And he says, you may be exporting physical gold to the world, but you're poor. You may be providing eye medication to the world, but you're spiritually blind and you're providing clothes to the world, but you're spiritually naked. And so it would have been a huge slap in the face to the church at Laodicea that was receiving this message that, hey, we think, but the worst thing wasn't any of these five things that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, or naked. The worst thing he said, Jesus says, is that you don't even know it. Like you think you're okay. You think you're fine. You think you're okay in all of these different areas. And that's really the worst part of Laodicea is that they don't recognize their condition. It's funny because there's a couple parallels to Revelation chapter three here that I'm thinking of in the Bible. One is when Jesus was teaching in John nine, you've got a blind man uh, who was born blind. And then at the, basically he heals him. This man receives his sight and gets challenged by the religious leadership. And there's this whole kind of dispute where the man stands up for Jesus and for the healing and gets kicked out of the church. And then at the end of the chapter, Jesus finds him and they have a conversation. And Jesus says, do you believe in the son of God? And I don't know who he is, who is he? And he's like, it's me, the one talking to you. And then he says, well, I believe. And then Jesus gives this little speech to everyone who's around him. And he talks about blindness and, and the people around get the sense that he's implying that they're blind. And these are religious teachers. These are Pharisees who actually started to follow Jesus as a teacher. Like they actually began to believe in him to an extent. And then they're like, are you saying that we're blind? Wait, wait, or, wait, with your little speech here, are you saying that we're blind? Because he says for, he came into the world to give people th- those that can't see vision and to show that those who think that they see can't see. And then they're like, wait a second. Are you saying that we're blind? And then he says, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. Mm. But because you say you see, your sin mm-hmm. remains, you yeah. know? So in other words, like, if you could realize that you were blind, then you wouldn't be accountable before God. Because it's almost like this idea that when you realize and recognize your condition, you're not in that condition anymore. Mm. It's like that's the beginning of the healing process. Like, oh, yeah, I'm blind. I can't see. Okay, so now I can give you sight. Because you've acknowledged, you've seen your condition, you understand your condition. And that's one of the reasons why I like your mission personally, like witnessing, because when I'm engaging in that, I actually realize my inadequacies. I realize I actually need God's help. I really need the Holy Spirit because I am all of those things. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. I was going to say that very thing. There's a quote from Testimonies to the Church, Volume 4, page 87. Ellen White says this, the only hope for the Laodiceans is a clear view of their standing before God, a knowledge of the nature of their disease. And I don't think there's any better way, just like Shursa was just saying, to recognize our own spiritual poverty, yeah, and spiritual nakedness, spiritual blindness, than to try to share the gospel with others. Like, it's such an awakening thing. It's, wow, I really need the Lord's help. And that's why I think evangelism is key in constantly waking us up to our need of God and our situation. I remember one time I got a phone call from a young guy who was out in the community, and he was originally from Africa. He's a a white American kid who was raised in Africa and spoke native languages and stuff, and he was used to African hospitality. So there, where he grew up in Zambia, if you were just walking around and you stumbled into a new village, people would just invite you in. Hey, where are you from? I'll talk to you. And at Arise, we were sending these kids out into the community to engage with the community, to meet people, talk to them, and, and try to spark up Bible studies with them. Anyways, he's having a hard day and he's, he calls me and he's like, man, 
I hate these people. <laughs> I hate them. In Africa, people are polite and respectful and they'll talk to anyone and I hate these people. I can't do this anymore. Come, come, I hate them. And, 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 and I thought, you know, this is, this is a metaphor to an extent. He never would have thought that he felt the way that he really, he never would have understood how he really felt about people until he tried to be nice to them and received different kind of treatment in response. And it helped him to see how conditional his concern for others was and how conditional his affection for others was. Anyways, we went, we prayed, we hung out together. I went to a few doors with them and we had a good time and it was all right. And I walked them through and said, this is one of the reasons we send you out. This is one of the reasons why we send you out. So you could learn to deal with yourself. So you can learn some things about yourself and who you really are and what you really are and what you need from God. And I just want to throw this out there and it's a question slash comment, but doesn't this infer that we should embrace messages and messaging, both from God and other people, that help us to see our poor condition before God. And at the same time, isn't that the opposite of what we tend to try to do as a church amongst ourselves? Like, it's okay to affirm and to acknowledge, and it's important to encourage, like, the good in others. We don't want to always be running around like critical judges and, like, wanting to find out what's wrong with other people. But Jesus does say, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He does say here, hey, this is the condition you're in and you need to know it. And if I love you, I rebuke you. And so be zealous to repent. But does it, so it's a twofold question slash comment. Like we should embrace messages and messaging that help us to understand our need, our deep and profound need of God. And that doesn't necessarily make you feel good at the first. But at the same time, it seems like we as a people, we as a movement, at least in Australia here, and I'm not being critical, but it seems like we don't want to hear messages and messaging that might make us doubt you know, how great we are before God, right? Now, of course, in Jesus, we are great before God, 100%. And God's amazing love, like, it sees us as beautiful and wonderful, but you get the point that I'm making. So you want to comment or share about that a bit? I think it's it's so true. It's human nature to think, oh, no, I'm fine. And all the more in that the parallels between ancient Laodicea and us in the Western world today are striking. Like we here today, I walk into stores sometimes and think kings in the past have not had access to fruits from all over the world at the, in the off seasons. And just the things that we have access to today as middle class, regular people exceed that of kings and queens in the past. And we, because of our physical affluency and the blessings that we have in the Western world, it does affect our, and because of, for those who are part of God's, God's church, like we know so much head knowledge. We have so much head knowledge. And we're so spiritually rich in that sense that we tend to feel like we're okay. We tend to neglect messages like you're mentioning, Matt, that God sends to wake us up to the fact that it's not okay to just have head knowledge. No, we're not spiritually okay. We desperately need help from the great physician. And he wants to be the great physician. But in order to go to the doctor, you have to recognize your need. If you don't recognize your need, then... Yeah, your likelihood of going is almost zero. I think it's interesting when you, you know, just sharing that experience of, about this young guy that lived in Africa and the difference between the two cultures. And the biggest difference really is the level of wealth. I've spent time in Africa and it is the places that I went to was just absolute poverty, poverty like we can't even begin to imagine, and yet an openness to the gospel and not just an openness to the gospel. These people are not offended when you read these strong passages. And uh, it was one of the things that they taught us as evangelists. When you go there, they're like, don't hold back on the strong stuff because they'll love it. They will absolutely love it. You want to stand up and talk about the Antichrist? 
go hard. The harder you go, the more they're going to love it. And these kind of things, we're here in Australia. We'll cancel you. <laughs> Everybody gets offended. You're cancelled. That's it. You're over. The moment that you say something that might be slightly offensive to another person. And it just illustrates what happens from a very physical perspective. When we become rich and increased with goods, we become very fragile. We become snowflakes and we get so easily offended. And it's, you can't speak to me like that. What would happen if Jude, I mean, think about Jude for a moment. And if you're unfamiliar with Jude, go and read the book of Jude. It will take you all of five minutes. But imagine for a moment, read through that book and just imagine if this guy was a guest speaker at your church. Okay, think about how the audience is going to respond. Okay, so you put out your advertising and say, hey, Jude's coming to church this week and he's going to be, and it's like, wow, everyone's going to turn up because this is one of the disciples. No one's going to miss out on this. You get a celebrity speaker there and then he preaches the book of Jude. Seriously, so many people in an affluent society are going to be so offended mm. that he would say those kinds of things and he would be cancelled from one end of the country to the other and yet... You preach that same message in a more poverty-stricken society. And we mentioned Africa, but I've been to many other places in developing countries in the world. And all of those developing countries, they're all exactly the same. You go in there, you go hard, you don't hold back. You preach like that here in Australia, you're done. It's over. People are like, oh, no, I can't believe that you would say something like that. Yeah. That's so offensive. It, I think there's a lesson here. I think there's a lesson. I like the lesson. And I think it's interesting too, of all of the seven churches, Jesus had things of commendation and rebuke for all of them, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, who was just commendation. But then you come to Laodicea, there's no commendation at all. There's nothing positive. But it's the only letter to a church that Jesus tells them, I love. He says, I love this church as wretched and as miserable as it is. And he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So it's out of love that he's actually doing this as well. Mm, so. Absolutely. Something when Lau, when you were talking, it, it sparked in my mind was the fact that in our society today in the West, it's all very subjective. Truth is subjective. It's, hey, you can't tell me that I am something when I think I'm this. Yeah. Right? It's like, no, if I think that I'm a woman, then I'm a woman, right? If I think I'm a potato, I'm a potato. You have to call me a potato or whatever it might be. But the idea that there is an objective reality is something that is pushed against in our Western world. Because it's offensive people, to our Western that's world. That's right. And Jesus says, hey, you think this, but no, this is the reality. And it's, it cuts across this, this subjective truth world that we live in here. And just so we never forget that, he introduces himself in the beginning of the letter as the faithful and true witness. He will mm. tell us the truth about ourselves. Ah, powerful. So he comes to basically says to us, you guys are self-identifying as being Christians. You're self-identifying as being saved. You're self-identifying as all these kind of things, but you're actually not. You can self-identify all day long. It's not going to make it reality. Yes. And, and the Christian church may have been the first group amongst all in Western society to start self-identifying first, mm. because it's this idea that once saved, always saved. Like I have verbalized the name J-E-S-U-S -S and said, I believe in my heart and therefore I'm saved. And whether or not I'm actually experiencing salvation, that's another matter because I have decided because of what I have proclaimed that I'm saved, mm. right? By biblical definition, well, whatever, no. So I'll overemphasize certain passages and I'll actually interpret them in an extreme way. If you 
believe in your heart, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you shall be saved. Mm. So I'll just interpret that to mean, I'll voice this interpretation on it that allows me to just simply say I'm a Christian because I say I'm a Christian. Mm. I do this action, I identify this way, therefore I am. Therefore I which am, is, yeah. Which is 100% salvation by works. It, and it's also just presumption. I will presume upon God what I am. I will decide what I am. I will define who I am and what I am. And this passage of Scripture that has, when you break down the language of the text, and then you understand it in its context and in the larger context of the New Testament, it's to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth is not, that's like a expression, it's basically saying, if you fully express with all that you are, if that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Because It's basically saying, if you live truly as if Jesus is Lord, yeah. then he's going to save you. He, it's if you were to say, if you live as if Moses is really the person who came to deliver you from Egypt, you will be saved. There's a whole world of meaning in that. It's not just I can verbally profess that I'm a Christian. I can think in my head that I'm a Christian, and then that's what I am, because I think that's what I am. And so I think this is the thing. I'm just trying to make the case that, and I'm not going to make it long, but I just want to throw it out there that I think Christianity is where all this stuff started. This idea that I'll just self-identify and this is just what I am. But maybe I wouldn't say started, but it's a part of it. It's part of Very the package. This whole one part saved, always saved. Yeah, it's part of the equation for sure. As many as I love. Do you think maybe that in the modern world, people have confused love with acceptance? And yes. that's why they can't accept these, this way of expressing love. Like I'm going to come to you and I'm going to tell you the truth about yourself, whether you like it or not, because I love you. And I love you more than I love how you feel. Mm. And I love you more how you decide to respond to me and what that might mean to me. Like, I can tell you the truth. You might hate me for it. So I love you more than I love the ease of our relationship. You know what I'm saying? Totally. So do you think we in our modern society have confused love with acceptance? We've replaced love, true love, biblical love with just acceptance. Definitely. True. And discipline is seen as unloving in society today. Even healthy godly discipline from a parent to a child like it's painted as unloving and i love what it says in hebrews 12 verse 11 it says now therefore no discipline seems joyful at the present time nevertheless but painful it says nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it the one who's disciplining loves the person enough to go out of their way because it's not pleasant to discipline people like your kid or someone you're mentoring and you, you, are, you, got, them you about guys something. are going to learn that this is the most <laughs> un enjoyable part of parenting <laughs> yeah. one of the most necessary parts yes yeah. and it's actually the most loving thing to do because you see the long term hey it's not going to be pleasant for yeah. me or for them in the short term but in the long run it's actually it'll yield a peaceable fruit of righteousness it'll lead to something good in their life if they're trained by it that's i just occurred to me that the reason maybe why people don't like to be rebuked is because they're just living for the present they don't recognize that there's an eternity to think about there's eternal life if they were then they'd appreciate the rebuke but they just want to be comfortable in the present and we want to feel good rather than be good that's right i want to feel good more than i want to be good and i should maybe just re restate something that i said because i think it's not so much that the world has exchanged acceptance for love in my thinking but maybe more they've kind of toleration for love yeah, that's a better way to say it. Tolerate, because obviously in Jesus, we're all accepted. And I can accept a person without accepting their actions. And I can, so I can disagree with someone and accept you. Like, no, no, my arms are always open to you. I accept you. Yes. I accept you. But I'm not going to pretend like the things that you do are going to be okay. Or I think maybe that's, affirmation. Yeah, affirmation. That might be it. Like, love has been exchanged for affirmation mm -hmm. or unconditional acceptance of all that you think and do and feel. You know what I mean? So it's almost like this idea, indulgence is seen as love. 
You can part of the problem, I guess, from where the world comes from is that for a secular person, the world is divided into good people and bad people, and they see themselves as being good people. And uh, so therefore they will love and accept and affirm everybody, but they're not going to do that to bad people. Bad people belong in, in, in prison or wherever it might be, lock them up. And we don't like those bad people. Whereas for a Christian, we only have bad people. We're all broken. <laughs> we only have one class and we will love somebody who is an abject criminal as much as we will love somebody who is a good, sober, upstanding citizen in the community. And yet when we, but we won't affirm the abject criminal, we will love that person, but we won't affirm them. And then, so when there's somebody who is in the community that they see as being a good upstanding citizen, that we don't affirm what they're doing, they assume that we are placing them in the same category of criminal, which is the person that they hate because they are free to hate. Mm. We are not free to hate. We love everybody. They love good people and hate bad people. And so when there's somebody that we don't affirm, they assume that our lack of affirmation is hate because that's what they experience mm. to people that they don't affirm. Wow. <laughs> Amen. Hey, before we move on, because we've just got to move on to our next little section of chatting here. As a parent, I noticed that there's a difference between discipline and punishment. And I won't get into that too much, but there's also a difference between healthy discipline that's based on my objective assessment of a of my child and my desire to help them mm. and make them the best I can make them and me venting on them out of frustration for them falling short. So these are two different things. And when I say discipline, and I think when the Bible here, Jesus is saying, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten or I discipline. It's not saying as many as I love, I express dissatisfaction out of frustration with them because I don't like them at this moment. It's not like I'm venting my anger on you because you've fallen short and I'm mad at you for it. That's not the discipline that's here described. It's I have objectively assessed your situation and I'm genuinely concerned about you and want to do whatever I have to do to help you become the best possible person you can. And it's not just for my sake that I'm doing this, it's for yours. And I was studying the book of Deuteronomy this to support the kind of idea that I'm communicating here. I was studying Deuteronomy and I came up with this. I think that if you study the book carefully, you will realize this, that obeying God is allowing him to love you. Listening to what he has to say and applying it to your life is letting him love you mm. because he has knowledge, wisdom, perspective that you don't have. He's the, he designed you and the world around you. And when he sees, and when he comes to you and he's infinitely loving, so when he comes to you and says, you're doing this, you shouldn't do this, you do this, do this. And he gives you this law, this mosaic, when he gives the Jews this law and he gives by extension us the principles of that law, it's, hey, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to care for you. And here's all these amazing benefits that you'll receive if you do all the things that I'm saying. It's not like God's saying, hey, if you do this for me, I'll give you some favors, bro. It's not like a hustle. It's not like a deal he's trying to make with you. It's, look, I'm the designer of the universe here and I am your father and I love you. And there's some really good consequences that'll come from this kind of behavior. And there's really bad consequences that'll come from that kind of behavior. So I want to love you. So I'm going to give you the best possible advice. If you do it, you're letting me love you. And so I think here in, in Revelation to the church of Laodicea, it's let me love you. As many as I love, yeah. I'd give them discipline and guidance. And it's not because I'm venting on you because I'm mad at you because you didn't measure up. It's because I've objectively assessed the situation. And if you're smart, you'll trust me and let me help you mm. because I love you. I think that's kind of... I'd just love to jump in here. We've we got some new parents here, Matt. <laughs> that's right. We should share some, th some thoughts with them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, discipline is one of the most incredibly powerful things that you can do with your children. 
And uh, discipline that is outlined here is as many as I love, I discipline. And Jesus disciplines in love. And the difference between discipline in love and discipline not in love is really comes down to frustration. And what you will notice with your children, because you are fallen human beings, and because of that, at times, you will do it wrong. <laughs> yeah. the, the moment that you discipline your child when there is the slightest degree of frustration, of anger, of upsetness, whatever, in your heart, you will suddenly see it have zero effect. It's like, I just disciplined my child and nothing happened. And this is why discipline gets such a bad name is because so many parents will indulge their children to the point they get frustrated because discipline is hard to do as a parent. And so they will indulge their children, they get frustrated, then they lash out, and what they are modeling to their children is how to throw a tantrum. <laughs> yes, <laughs> totally. And brother Ellen White, I'm reading Child Guidance. She says that the parent who reacts in anger to their child's like misbehavior is worse than the child. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, when, when our kids were small and they do the wrong thing, one, one of the things that what we, we set up a process so that we would calm ourselves down because sometimes you get upset with your kids. That's simple reality. And so we set up a process. Okay, this is how we're going to discipline. And so we take the kid aside. We would have a little conversation, tell him why what he did was wrong. We would have prayer with him. We would paddle his backside and then hold him close and tell him how much we loved him. Unbelievably powerful. Yeah. Just the, just transforming for a child. Whereas so often what you see is the parent who just lashes out or yells and screams and yeah, model, models to the kid. This is how you throw a tantrum. This is how you get your way. I'm the parent. I'm getting my way by throwing a tantrum. So how's the child going to figure out how they're going to get uh, their way? I can see <laughs> Justin know, over there chomping at the I'll bit. But say, <laughs> my, my spelling could be wrong, but if I'm thinking right, spelling it right in my brain, discipline and discipling are only one letter apart. The word discipline. I have no idea how to spell, but I will agree with you. The word discipline Sounds and awesome. disciple, you know, like yes. you're actually discipling your child when you do healthy discipline, whereas unhealthy discipline is just reactive throwing a tantrum. But the words discipline and disciple are re related. That's what you do to a disciple is you discipline them. So if we're disciples of Jesus, we'll accept his discipline out of love and we'll recognize our condition. Anytime you discipline your children when there is emotion in your heart, like as in Negative emotion. Negative emotion is childhood. Wow. Powerful statement. I was going to say something that popped into my mind when it comes to just our theme of evangelism being the solution to Laodicea's problems is that we cannot share something we don't have. When you're out evangelizing, when you're sharing the gospel with others and you've not experienced the Holy Spirit fixing your broken eyesight and clothing you with Christ's righteousness and receiving the gold of, of faith and love combined. Or because you locked him out. Yeah. If Jesus is on the outside of your heart, how in the world are you going to go to people and say, hey, open the door of your heart to Jesus, right? We have to have the gospel as a part of our lives. We have to have Christ in our hearts, dwelling in our hearts by faith if we're going to share him with others. And I think that's key is when you're honest with yourself and you're honest with others and you're really seeking to introduce others to Jesus, you better know him yourself. You better be clothed. We better be clothed with his righteousness. We better have that eye salve. We better have the gold of faith and love. And okay, so I want to throw something in about the parent stuff, but I figure, okay, we've moved on, so I'm going to resist. But okay, <laughs> when Jesus called his disciples, he called them to become fishers of men, right? So it, it wasn't just come follow me. It was come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So I've got this plan for you to bring you on board with me so that you can get out there and learn to share and grow the community of faith. 
and this is going to develop you. So I just think that it inferred in this passage, right, in the whole passage, is the idea that if you get involved in mission, it's going to be part of the solution for you. You need to basically, you need to be refined and have gold refined in a fire. Well, how, do you, how does your faith, like gold, get refined in a fire unless you put it to the test by working with God, alongside of God, doing exploits in mission, right? Like the people who seem to me to have the greatest amounts of faith are the people who've tried to do the most for God. Yeah. Right, who've, who've, who've bit off more than they could chew, who've accepted the gospel commission, okay? Just in regards to, to discipline and chastisement and all this stuff, Jesus isn't saying, hey, listen, just come and sit in a room and I'll just tell you, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's not what we saw him do when he was on earth. We saw him with the disciples doing active ministry and they were learning on the job training and that was disciplining them. You know that to keep pace with Jesus would have been taking some serious discipline, right? So he's come along and I'll train you, I'll disciple you. You'll be rebuked at times, you'll be encouraged. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to just bring out that every single thing that this passage says, everything Jesus says to the church in this passage seems to indicate that he wants you involved in mission. Open your heart to me, I'm gonna come in, and then he's gonna come in and do what? Show you his great love for you, and by extension, the love for the world, and... He will make you a missionary. Yeah, and he says he'll give us power to overcome. Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So walking with Jesus and receiving victory in our lives over the sins that are tying us down and preventing us from a closer walk with him and a fuller life. Oh, in Revelation 12, they overcame the devil through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So sharing your testimony, your story, and preaching the gospel to whatever extent you can is the means by which you get victory over Satan. So you're in this Laodicean condition, the devil's like super stoked about it. And okay, okay, receive the blood of the Lamb more fully and more truly, but why do you do that? You seek God to the degree that you think you need Him, you accept the Laodicean message, you accept what God says about your condition, you let that inspire you to draw nearer to God, and then you share. Yeah, That's the secret. Amen. And God will recreate your heart, because one of the titles that He uses is not only the faithful and true witness, but it's the beginning of the creation of God. Not saying that Jesus was created, but rather that He is the initiator of the creation of God. He will recreate in us that new heart so that we can be about His mission. So good. Well, guys, I looked like I was going to close it down here, but Lyle, I I don't want the Bible. No, the Bible tells me. The Apostle Paul tells me to not quench the spirit. <laughs> and so I don't want to quench the spirit here. Do you want to share that thought, that remark? Okay, so I've, this is probably, I guess the illustration here of being lukewarm goes right along with the parable of the ten virgins. And what is interesting is that with the ten virgins, they're all asleep. The whole mm-hmm. lot of them are asleep. Mm-hmm. Every, every single last one of them is asleep. And to be able to go to sleep, you need to be lukewarm. You know what it's like on that summer's day when it's blazing hot and you're laying on the tiles of the bathroom gasping for breath? You don't sleep well. And likewise, if you go camping somewhere and you don't take a warm enough sleeping bag, you don't sleep well. Lukewarm is that perfect environment for sleep. And so there's a call Except here. Except for my wife. She likes hot. Anyways. With, 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 within, within tolerance. That's a different podcast. How much? <laughs> she wants to cuddle with me and it's real hot. Yeah. <laughs> the long and the short of it is that we've got a, an, an illustration here that says, okay, you guys, you're in a very, very comfortable, warm, fuzzy environment and you need to get out of it. And maybe if your church gives you a warm fuzzy every week when you go to your church, maybe that's not the healthiest environment for us to be in at this particular time. Christianity is not all about warm fuzzies. Christianity is about getting out and sharing the gospel. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks guys so much for joining me. I enjoyed this much more 
then I enjoy the run-of-the-mill episode of All Things Evangelism. <laughs> so thanks for coming. No, I always enjoy it just equally as much. But And thank you guys for joining us again. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. God bless. Thank you.